Quest Community Church, living life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. Well, how many of you made it to the, the Bucks game yesterday? I saw several people in the first service that I saw on Facebook taking pictures of them being at the Bucks game. Isn't that a great game to be at? Unless, of course, you're Brian Malakowski, who just dedicated his child and you're a graduate of Rutgers. Then it's not so great. But how amazing is it to have 106,000 fans cheering for you? Anybody ever had that experience? I haven't had quite that many, maybe 50. But isn't it awesome to have, have people cheering for you? I mean, if I, if I just asked you the question, what are some of the greatest fan moments in your life? What are some of the greatest moments in your life where somebody was cheering for you, rooting for you, pulling for you? I'll bet every one of you in a matter of seconds would come up with some, some memories. One that when I'm asked that question that comes up on a regular basis is a really long time ago. And I feel funny because it's always one of the first ones that comes up. It's district basketball tournaments in my senior year. And uh, we thought we were going to have a big setback because the captain of our team had gotten kicked off the team that week because of a DUI. And so we went into the game wondering what was going to happen. And we had the best teamwork we've ever had. And every single player that started that day had the best individual game they'd ever had. The fans were raucous. But most importantly, I can still to this day remember when I close my eyes and see exactly where my parents were sitting in that little rural gymnasium cheering and smiling and just egging me on. It was just, it's just such a good memory. Fans really add a lot to the game, don't they? What do the Blue Jackets call the fans? The fifth line. And the Bible actually talks about the fact that each one of us has a fifth line in our life. And in Hebrews 12, it says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. And the series that we're in is called Coached by the Greats. And we're talking about what, hap- what would happen if some of these greats of the faith who are in this great cloud of witnesses cheering us on would come out of the stands, come onto the playing field, come into our huddle with a whiteboard and coach us for a minute. Give us one whiteboard lesson. What would that be? Well, today... We get to look at a guy named Abraham who's actually claimed as the founder of three of the major religions on earth right now of Judaism, Islam, and Christianity all claim him as the founder. They all interpret what that means differently for him to be that great person of faith for them. But we're going to ask him to come out of the stands. And I think what he would say to us today, if he were here, would be two basic things. He'd give us a really quick mini lesson on how to understand the Old Testament because I think a lot of us don't quite understand how we should interpret it and have a hard time reading. And I think the other thing he would do is he'd give us a series of lessons around one theme that give us a perspective on how God over our lifetime grows our faith because the invitation of this series, the invitation of our passage is for us to all grow to be great in our faith. Now, before I go further, the faith portion of this, let me just give some credit where credit's due. As I was preparing for this, I listened to a message by a guy named Chris Hodge, and so I'm using his basic outline and points for the faith lesson perspective portion of this. So I want to give a little credit there today. Uh, So first, the mini lesson on how to understand the Old Testament. A couple weeks ago, we talked about the fact that we often experience a disconnect between the Old and the New Testaments, and we struggle with how to understand the Old. And we talked a couple weeks ago about how really the whole Bible 
is the story of Jesus. It's the story of the gospel. The Bible points to Jesus in every, every respect. We sometimes think the Bible is all about morality and principles. That's not really true. There are certainly good, good, there are certainly good morality and good principles that we can learn from. But the primary emphasis of the Bible is the story of God and His kindness in pursuing us, His patience, His love, His desire to have a relationship with culminating in Jesus. It's all about the good news. And that clears up a little bit. It helps us read the Old Testament from a different perspective, but there's still a misguided idea of the relationship between old and new that frankly gets fomented by too many pastors preaching wrongly about this as well. It comes down to a misunderstanding of the idea of law and grace and what God intended religion and faith to be and consist of in the Old Testament. Old Testament faith, we often think, was primarily about law, living up to the law, doing all the sacrificial things right, being good enough, being uh, following everything Moses commanded and, and doing the law. We think that's what it is. We think the New Testament is primarily about faith and grace. And so we look at that and we come to a wrong conclusion about the Old Testament. Well, frankly, we come to the conclusion that it's old that it's irrelevant, that it's uh, something done away with by the New Testament. We misunderstand what the New Testament talks about when it says done, uh, it came to fulfill it. Now, I had an Old Testament professor in seminary. He was kind of the granddaddy theologian of the charismatic movement that hit uh, mainline churches in the 60s of the last century and went, has gone on as a major force in the church worldwide today. His name is Dr. Howard Urban. And when I had him for Old Testament theology, his very first lesson to us was around this issue. And he dispelled this wrong view of the Old Testament by looking at Abraham, the guy we're looking at today. And he looked particularly at two passages. He looked first at Genesis 12. Let's read that. He says, The Lord had said to Abraham, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him. Now, to properly understand Old Testament faith and all that follows, as Dr. Irvin said, you have to start with understanding this passage, understanding that All of Old Testament faith began in promise. It began with a response of faith, an invitation to faith in a promise. It began began with God initiating relationship with us, not us trying to fulfill laws or rules to earn our relationship with God. It became started in promise. And even in the Old Testament, the response to God and the measure of salvation was based upon our trust of that promise and him, trusting his promise, trusting what he said enough so that we would take the next step of obedience, whatever that was that day, because we believed him enough that we would actually act on it even though we didn't see it yet. The Old Testament religion is intended to be a faith of grace and trust and faith. Genesis 15, 6 even reaffirms this. It says, Abraham believed the Lord, And it was credited to him as righteousness, right standing and salvation. Understanding our previous lesson and today's lesson on the Old Testament makes reading the Old Testament very different because the faith as it was intended to be expressed was the same faith as now, the same Lord, the same baptism, the same righteousness all throughout the Bible. The only difference between the Old and the New Testament is the fact that Jesus perfected 
the work of sacrifice to bring forgiveness and empower us by the Holy Spirit. That's the only difference. It was all about promise and faith from the very beginning. So, that aside, how could we summarize what I think Abraham would give us in his little whiteboard lesson? I think we could say it this way. I think, he, I think Abraham would say to us, God always does the right thing as the theme for his growth in his life. Now, that statement, it's kind of blunt, isn't it? It sounds very absolute, and it is very absolute. And there are some who would hear that statement and they'd say, well, that, that just amounts to blind faith. But to believe that that statement amounts to blind faith presupposes that God is not much bigger than you are. And the reality is that God is tremendously bigger than we are, far bigger than all of us, so much bigger that there are some things we won't understand now and we won't understand them for a while. And there are other things that we will never understand because he is so much bigger than we are. And we can have a faith that is intelligent, that is curious, that is questioning, that is searching, that is intellectual, and be okay with the fact that we will understand some things later and some things we will never understand. I mean, think about it from this perspective. Have you ever played the game with some of your friends or, or, or just in your own mind at times asking your question, if there was one thing I could ask God that befuddles me, that just doesn't make sense, what would it be? And sometimes we come up with fairly serious issues in life. I mean, when I'm around this, I usually hear women answering that question. Well, I just, I don't know, I don't know why men are the way they are. They're kind of thick-headed, right? And the women kind of, men kind of respond back and go, I don't know about women and they, we won't go we won't go any further down that path we don't want to start any fights we want to go home at peaceful today but there are other things that are just silly too that we wonder i mean wonder things like uh, did adam and eve have, have a belly button I mean, just silly things or why women can't put on mascara without opening their mouth have you ever wondered that question why is abbreviated such a long word you know why is a person who invests your money called a broker that doesn't make sense does it why is the time of day with the slowest traffic called the rush hour? That doesn't make sense. Or here's one I really love. Why do sheep not shrink when it rains and it's hot and windy out? I don't get it. But seriously, we have all these humorous questions, but every one of us has also had times in our life when God does not make sense. And I think if Abraham jumped out of the stands today and came down and talked to us right where we at, I think he'd probably address the day that you thought God blew it. The day that you, that someone died that you thought shouldn't have died. The day that God didn't show up like you thought he should show up in the way or in the time that you thought he should show up. And many of us ask questions of God that we don't understand, that we don't have the answers for. Some of them are humorous. Frankly, very many of them are very painful and difficult for us as well. And part of faith and trust is being okay, not understanding. I mean, it's not that foreign of an idea to us, is it? I mean, as kids, there were a lot of things that you just trusted because your dad or your mom said it was right. And you never need, you didn't, you didn't need to understand it. Was it okay was it okay? Was it good faith that you didn't have to understand and didn't have to ask the questions? I mean, even when kids get older and become teens and in college or young adults, uh, all of us parents the, who are that age, and we know or you've heard your parents say this or think this, that they'll say someday they'll understand, right? 
And a lot of times they come back to you years later and they say, I didn't like what you said at the time, but I understand why you said it now and you really were right. How many of us have had to go back to our parents with some humble pie a few years later and say that, right? You never have to say that to me. That's okay. Sorry. At some point, many of our kids do come back. Now, we're going to always take the posture in our faith of trying to pursue understanding. We're always going to push hard to know knowledge because the Bible teaches us that that is wise for us. But we also need to learn that our Heavenly Father, when we do not understand Him, can be trusted. Because if we don't understand that faith lesson, we will never live at peace in our life. And although that's uncomfortable for us to make that statement, and it may be even hard for us to make that statement, it is reasonable for us to trust him in that way. Trusting God always does the right thing. Now, it doesn't stop there. Abraham's life, I think, illustrates some really important nuances that we're going to look at about how God grows that kind of faith for us to say that in our life. We've already looked at how God promised Abraham in chapter 12 children and descendants and how he would have a nation worldwide impact. And we pick up the story again in chapter 15, and Abe is older already. He's long past childbearing age, and God speaks to him again in chapter 15, and he says, after this. Now, just the after this is referring back to the previous chapter, which is the first time God ever did something through him that was really kind of like nation-building and nation-impacting. In the previous chapter, we see him win a battle that, that, that overcomes some kings who were trying to uh, capture Lot, his nephew, as well as defeat some other kingdoms. And, and he's the guy, the decisive battle winner of and savior of several kingdoms as well in this. And God does something great to him that maybe even sounds a little bit like the promise he does. And then it goes on and says, the word of the Lord came to, came to Abram in a vision, saying, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your very great reward. I mean, this is God reaffirming again his promise to him of becoming a great nation and of doing great things through him. But Abraham responds to him actually with sadness. He's kind of discouraged, like, a, like, like we so easily get. He says, but Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. You have given me no children, so, so a servant in my household will be my heir. He's basically saying, God, you're making commitments to me that you're not backing up. And he's got some really legitimate questions, right, in this whole thing. Then the word of the Lord came to him and it said, and God said this to him. He said, this man will not inherit, will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. God is basically saying to him, even though you don't think that I'm doing what I promised, don't think I'm doing anything other than it. I'm absolutely going to do exactly what I promised. And then God took him outside, it says, and he said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Now remember, this is not the Columbus night sky where you look up and you see five stars and then you go, oops, one of them's a plane and now you're down to four, right? This is, this is like, you know, a hundred miles out in the Alaskan wilderness, a hundred miles away from the nearest campfire. And the, 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 the sky is so full of stars with the Milky Way and with the northern lights. It looks like clouds almost because there's so many stars. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. One of the things I love about this passage is that we see God having this dilemma 
And the dilemma is this. You don't see what he sees. You don't see how sure and how beautiful and how full his promise is over your life. And the beautiful thing about Abraham's story is that in spite of our discouragement, in spite of our questions, God patiently over and over again kindly makes attempts to get you to see over and over again who he's made you to be, the call he's got in your life, and the promise he has for your life. But sometimes we still don't see it. Sometimes we still don't see it, even though God's making these attempts. So the question of faith becomes this. What are you going to do when you still don't get it? I mean, you have these impressions from God. You've had these dreams about your work, or, and you've had things that you felt like God promised, and some of those things have been affirmed by people around you, encouraging you and, and, and confirming that. And you've had encounters with God, and you have this beautiful sense of promise, but you still don't see it, and you still don't quite get how God's going to get you to that place. And the question is, what are you going to do in those moments? Abraham's response in verse 6 is, Abraham believed the Lord. And God credited it to him as righteousness. I think the whiteboard lesson God would say, Abraham would say to us is something like this. God always does the right thing, even if it takes a long time. Even if it takes a long time. Abraham's thinking, I thought God would at least give me a child while my wife's reproductive capacity and my reproductive capacity was still alive. I mean, God promised that I'd be the father of multitudes, and I don't even have one child yet. Something none of us really like to hear about God is that God is notorious, I think, sometimes for taking a long time on some of the promises he gives us. At least it's a long time for us. And if I could tell you from my own faith journey uh, a lesson of faith, I would say that this is absolutely true. I mean, I, I look back at the transition from Tulsa to Oregon, and God spoke to me and said, the transition time is soon. And several other people came and confirmed that, and I felt like, okay, this is going to happen. Three to six months, three-plus years later, it finally happens. That's not soon to a guy who's driven. And then I, and I guess I hadn't learned the lesson well enough, so I, my next job, the transition to here from that previous job that I had, God spoke to me in May of 2006, and just in a very, very vivid dream, just said, transition 0609. And I just woke up just like a start after that dream, sat up in bed and just knew it was God's presence. And I, I looked at Wendy and I said, we're going to be in a new job, probably moving by September of this year, the ninth month of 2006, which is the way I write my computer dates. I do it backwards. Instead, I interviewed here in 2008, and only God could make an interview process last so long to match up with his timing. My first day on the job here and my last day on my job in the previous place was 0609 June of 2009. God keeps his promises even though it doesn't seem like it's going to happen. It was 1994 that God gave me a word uh, that I would be a senior pastor someday of a vineyard church. In fact, that word came through a guy named Cheon who this next week is going to be preaching at our, our church in Saratov, Saratov, Russia, where our missionary who was just here preaching, speaking to us a couple of weeks ago is going to be with him. And it was 15 years later that that finally came to pass. 15 years is fast by God's timing. That's not fast by my timing. And some of you have had dreams. Some of you have had things you've been praying for and waiting on a promise for decades. Things take a long time. Even after Abraham's encounter in Genesis 15, it still took a long time. 
And Abraham, unfortunately, does what we're all tempted to do when things take a long time. He goes to plan B. Sarah comes to him one day and says, well, we obviously can't have kids, so let's just adopt the, let's just adopt a practice of the culture. You go have sex with my maidservant and the child will be ours. We'll adopt him and that's how this is going to happen. And we know how that went. It created Ishmael and it created tension and bitterness that spread throughout generations that unfortunately has caused bitterness between Arabs and Jews and Christians for far too long because that bitterness has never gone away in too many respects. That's not a racist comment. That is simply a comment on the reality of history. And that's plan B costs us a lot. It always does. And it's easy for us to fall prey to a plan B, especially when you are living faithfully in something. When you are at work and you're trying to live with all integrity and other people who live with less integrity pass by you, it's hard to not want to go to plan B. When you've been single and you've been dreaming of being married and other people who are not living as faithfully to God's best are passing you by and finding their mates and getting married, it's really tempting to go to plan B because we live in a culture today where we have this get-it-now mentality. And, you will, and the reality of, of Abraham's lesson to us all today is we will never be people of great faith until we learn that God is a patient God. And isn't that what we really want, a patient God? I mean, I know when it's the promise to us, we want it now, right? But when we're not doing so well in life, we really want a God who's patient with us. It reminds me of the old joke that goes around in many different forms that preachers say, so forgive me if you've heard it before. It's the, this guy goes to God and says, what, what's a million dollars to you, God? And God says, it's like a penny. And then he says, what's a million years to you, God? And, and God says, it's like a second. Then he says, God, can I have one of those pennies? And God says, sure, just a second, right? I've already asked. It's still funny. It's just an old joke, but it's still funny. Second Peter 3 says this, the Lord is not slow. The Lord's not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God wants his kids, us, to be patient too, and he develops that into our faith. After all, one of the fruits of the Spirit is patience, right? God always does the right thing, even if it takes a long time. Another faith lesson of growing our faith that Abraham gives us would be, I think, said this way. God does the right thing, even when it seems absurd. Even when it seems absurd. Even when it seems crazy. Genesis 18, we pick up the story, and Abraham and Sarah are much older now even. They're between 90 and 100 years old, and they still have no child. And, and, and Genesis 18 records the story of three visitors to Abraham. One of them, I believe, and many theologians believe, is Jesus appearing before his incarnation as one of the angels visiting him because Abraham worships him and bows down before him. And Abraham invites them to stay with him for a meal and then watch this interaction between them says, where is your wife, Sarah, they asked him. There in the tent, Abraham said. Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, will have a son. So God says, now is the time for the promise to be fulfilled. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. And Abraham and Sarah were already very old. And Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, am I worn out? And my Lord, that's what you guys all want to be called, right? You want to be called that by your spouse. And my Lord is old. Will I now have this pleasure? 
She's basically saying, good going, God. Wait to make the announcement that the time is right when it's impossible. After all the hot flashes and menopause are gone, right? Then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year and Sarah will have a son. And Sarah was afraid. So she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, yeah, yeah you did laugh. I know it. Romans 4.19, Paul actually refers back to this statement and, and talks about it this way in a really interesting way. He says, without weakening in his faith, Abraham faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. He faced the facts. And yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. You see, we often put the ability to fulfill our dreams on our own shoulders and we carry that weight around. We just read another book on how to manage life or be a better leader or how to manage a dream or set better goals and we put all that weight on us and all that stuff can be wise and good. But Abraham gives us a lesson here that the way we deal with our promises is not to put the weight on our shoulders but it's to strengthen our faith. It's to through not working things up. It's, it, it's through giving glory to God. It's through worshiping. It's through verbalizing the promise. It's through verbalizing our trust in God to fulfill that promise, not putting the weight on ourselves, but instead, as it goes on to say, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. Being so persuaded that we live with ease and just taking the next step. We don't carry that weight that keeps us born weighted down in life. And this is why it says it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, for you and I. And Paul explicitly affirms to us that Abraham's lesson of faith is an example to us, that God is not out of his mind. He's not crazy, but he does require trust. It's not your ability that brings the promises to pass, even though God designed you for that purpose and he's given you gifts and ability to make that happen. It's not your ability that brings it to pass. It's your trust in his promise. And it's your responsiveness because of that trust to just the next thing that he asks you to do. Abraham's faith lesson goes on. And I think he would say this. I think he would say, God always does the right things, even if it doesn't seem right. Now, this is not the, like the previous question where he's saying, God, you're crazy. This is, the, this is the one where he's saying, God, I'm not sure you're right. I think you're wrong. The, the, the story goes on in chapter 18 of these three men saying, well, the reason, part of the reason we came is not just to give you the promise, but we're going to go destroy Sodom because it has is, it is fallen to such depths of evil that we don't think it's savable. And this freaks Abraham out. Why? Because his only nephew, his Lot, Lot, his only nephew who came with him from the old country, the only family he has lives in Sodom. And Abraham's mind is going wild, probably with questions saying, God, I'm not sure you're making the right call. He expresses it in verse 23 this way. He says, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Abraham goes on from there and aggressively negotiates with God. Have you ever negotiated with God? Abraham gives us a great example here. He bargains with God. He says, if there are 50 righteous, will you spare the city and spare my relatives? And God says, yes. And then he goes on and says, okay, just forgive me. Let me ask you again. Uh, how about 45? 
And then God says, and then it says, well, but okay, how about 40? And God says, yes. And they says, well, have a little more patience with me. How about 30? And God says, yes. And then he goes 20 and then he goes 10. And each time God answers saying, if there are only eventually says 10 righteous in the entire city, I will spare the entire city. And this is such an amazing picture of God's patience. And God's desire to spare life, to save life, even if there is the smallest margin of hope that someone could be shared. And I think for us applying that today, it means your righteousness, your faithfulness to believe in the, tr- in the promise of God and to trust God can spare many people greatly because of your faith. So be encouraged in that. There are times... We all question God, and that's okay, right? I mean, Jesus even questioned God. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But faith is trusting God's promise, even in the midst of the questions. Even in the midst of the questions, trusting enough to say, I trust your promise, and I'm going to take the next step. I think one of the most embarrassing moments in all of history is going to be when people get to God and they, say, and, and they go, wow, I, I, I guess you were really right all along. I mean, Proverbs 14 says it this way. It says, there's a way that appears to be right, but in the end it leads to death. And the reality is for faith, we don't need faith if we see everything clearly. We don't need faith when we agree fully with God in every respect. We don't need faith when we understand everything. We need faith when we don't. And the question is, what are we going to do when we still don't see it? The last lesson, it's not the last point of the message. The last lesson, and then I'm going to give you kind of what I think Abraham's motivational close to his little whiteboard lesson would be and real quickly. God always does the right thing, even if we don't understand, kind of coming full circle to where we started with in this discussion. This is the story of God testing Abraham. He finally has the son that's promised to him, Isaac, through Sarah. And God asks him one day, take him to Mount Moriah, which is where the uh, Dome of the Rock is today in Jerusalem. And I want you to kill your child there as a sacrifice to me. Now, God never had any intention of him killing him. But the interesting thing part of this story, it was a test of his faith. The interesting, interesting part of this story is to look at the difference in how Abraham responds here than every other time. At every other point in his life, he questioned God. When he was told to leave and take no family with him, he still takes Lot. He questions God. When he's told, I'm going to protect you, and all of a sudden he's threatened, and his wife is threatened, and some kings think he, they want to marry his wife, and he, he, he questions God, and he doesn't, he doesn't stand up for it. And we see him questioning God before he sees the stars. We see him questioning God again at the tent. But as Abraham faces this greatest faith test of all of his entire life, he doesn't question. He just goes ahead with it without questioning. And really, that's the place God wants us to all get in our faith and trust of God. And it comes for him because he's had this serious series of life experiences where he's questioned God and God has been patient and kind with him. And he's always come out back into that question and said, but I'm going to choose right now to express faith. I'm going to choose to believe the promise. And he just picks up the next board, as we talked about last week, from board to boat with Noah and his faith, or just does the next thing that's in front of him. And he's had enough life experiences now of God's faithfulness that he he doesn't need to question anymore, even in a big thing. He simply trusts and acts. Hebrews 11 summarizes it this, this way. It says, By faith Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. 
even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. Don't you wish you were at that place? Don't you wish you had that level of trust? I'm not sure I'm there. I don't think I'm there. I wish I was there. But the whole point of this is that Abraham, again, is showing us the lesson we talked about in our very first one, that God is the better version of Abraham. He's the one who sent his son to die for us, to pay the price for us in every respect. And yet Abraham's life of faith gives us a lesson of faith in spite of, in fact, even in the midst of all his foibles, which are are many, we see this growing confident faith of trusting God, trusting God in our world, trusting God that you are forgiven and acting like that you really are forgiven and letting the stuff go and learning to forgive others because you know you're forgiven and, and trusting God's good plan of you and not taking the weight and the stress of that on you, trusting that he's got good plans for you every day. And regardless of where you are, having this convinced, assured faith that allows you to engage life fully, whatever is next, whatever God leads you to in the next step, the more times you diligently obey in faith, the more the trust and faith grows. Trust and repeatedly obey when you understand and when you don't. When it takes longer than you expect and when it doesn't. And when it seems absurd. And even when it seems wrong. Because God knows best. And that means from time to time, He's going to say to you, trust me, I don't think you want me to answer that prayer in the way, you, in the way you're asking me to answer it. Think about it. I mean, some of the people you dated, aren't you glad you're not married to them? I mean, they're great people. They needed to be married to somebody else, but they definitely didn't need to be married to you, right? Because that was not going to work. Or, or think about the things that you wish you had over the course of your life that in retrospect, you know if you'd had them, they would have turned out horrible. There's a bunch of jobs I've been offered that were really tempting at times to take them that would have been absolutely awful for me and my family. There are things I wanted as a teen and wanted as an early 20-something person that if I had gotten them, it would have been bad. And I'm sure you have those same things in your life, those same stories of your life. And, and what about the current struggles? What about the current difficulties you're facing? What would Abraham say if he came out of this cloud of witnesses down into the race and right in the middle of those difficulties at the moment you needed it? What would he, what would he say to you? I think he'd say something like, it's not, it's not what you think. And he would share with you these faith perspectives we've talked about. And I think he would sum up his lesson to us in a couple of other phrases of how to engage God's growth plan and faith by saying this. Don't make, your, make earth your home. Rather, live with an eternal perspective. Don't get rooted here. Don't, don't get to the where you think all of your satisfaction, all of your pleasure, everything has to happen now here in this life. You are just passing through. And while God has tremendous good for you to enjoy and tremendous purpose for you to be a part of in this life, some of that tremendous purpose that you're going to enjoy may not feel so enjoyable. It may feel a little bit more like the satisfaction of doing the right thing and persevering even in some difficult circumstances. So don't get in the position of thinking this life is the only life. In fact, this life is only a blip on the screen of the life you have. So live with an eternal perspective in everything you do. Everything you have, everything you spend your money on, everything you spend your time on, it can make an investment in eternal purposes. It can make a difference for eternity. Hebrews 11.13 says this, All these people, 
these greats of the faith were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They received a lot of things. I mean, there's some pretty great things that these guys received in life. But they did not receive the things fully promised. They had only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. And therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Why? Because they trust his promise thoroughly. For he has prepared a city for them. And implied within that, I think Abraham would clarify it one step further, saying, live with the next generation focus. Because the dream of God for your life will live longer than your lifetime alone. So pass your faith on to the next generation. God basically said to Abraham, your name will be great and your descendants will be like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore and they will bring blessing to the entire earth and I'm going to give you one. One son. Just one. It reminds me of some of Jesus' words. Or, and their work will be greater than yours. Actually, it's not Jesus' words. It's somebody else's words. And their work will be greater than yours. And like your heavenly Father is greatly pleased, you will be greatly pleased as well in the work of the succeeding generations. Life is worth living. Let's just pause for a moment. There's been a lot in this message. I have a feeling the Holy Spirit wants to come and touch you in a specific area as to where he's uh, wanting to grow your faith right now. So let's just pause with an attitude of prayer. And if you want to close your eyes for lack of distraction and just ask God yourself, where are you growing my faith right now? I, I sense that some of you here are probably at the place where you're going, what God has asked me to do is crazy because... It's beyond me. I'm not capable of doing that. And I think God would say to you today, I called you and you are capable. Trust me. Trust the promise. Trust my goodness to you. Some of you are discouraged because it's taken a long time. It's been a really hard road. It's been disappointing. Things are supposed to get better and it seems like they've gotten worse for a while. And God's saying to you, don't be discouraged. My time may not be your time, but my time is good. I'm doing exactly what I promised you I would do. I don't know what that is. Maybe it's a healing of a relationship. Maybe it's a dream for your work. What you felt like God called you to do. He's here. And he wants to affirm you today. He wants to touch you today. Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd come and you just touch each one of us right where we're at. You would speak to us again and bring to mind the pictures and, and the words and the vision or the dream that we've had that we felt like was a promise from you. No matter how specific or general, Lord, would you bring it to mind? Would you come and speak to our hearts and encourage us? Would you help us, Lord, to lay the burden off of our shoulders, the stress that we've carried, the angst that we've carried in questioning and doubting whether we were fit or whether you had rejected that promise because we weren't good enough, because it's not coming, whether we did something wrong, or would you take all those burdens, would you take all that weight from us? 
thank you that your promise is good, that your promise is true, your promise is faithful. We can trust you. We worship you today. We worship you. Thank you for your presence among us right now. Just continue to engage with God. Worship him. Let him come and lift those burdens and lift those fears, lift those questions. Holy Spirit, come. As we continue in worship, feel free to sit and journal and ponder the thoughts that you feel like God's saying or just continue in prayer or engage in singing however you wish. I don't know, I'm going to take a risk here. I feel like God's saying that there's somebody here who hasn't jumped all both feet in with Jesus and you're sensing that drawing to the promise that he's made to save you, the promise he's made to make your life great and the invitation for you today is to take that step. Just take that step. Say, I'm all in. I'm going to follow you, Jesus. Pray it in your own words and, and, and tell a friend. I'd love for you to come tell me if you've made that decision today. If you're here today as well, part of the way we encourage each other in faith is we worship and we pray for one another. If you came here discouraged or throughout the message you realize I'm a little bit discouraged about this area of a promise in my life and I, I, just, need some, I just need some encouragement, I want to... I want to challenge you to find somebody to pray with before you leave today. Turn to a friend. If you don't have anybody you're comfortable asking to pray, there'll be some people up front, people in the back, myself, Jeremy, Wendy, others that you can ask to pray for you. We'd be happy to pray for you. God bless. Go in faith this week. God's promise is good for you. It's always good for you, even when it doesn't feel like it. Have a great week. Thank you for listening. Join us at Quest as we walk with one another in friendship while discovering the reality and goodness of God together. For more information and service times, visit us online at gotoquest.org.